Hi, my name is Justin, and I'm the executive pastor of Family Life here at GCC. And I just want to let you know that we believe this is your time. This is your time to worship. It's your time to serve. It's your time to grow. And I want to take just a moment to let you know what your next steps are. At the end of every service, we do something called Gen and Five. It's where we take just five minutes to talk about who we are as a church. We also have something called Connect Class, where we go in depth and we talk about the DNAs and the values of who we are. If you want to serve, we have something called Behind the Scenes Tour, where you can do just that. You can go behind the scenes of who we are as a church and find out where your spot is. And finally, we would love to connect with you as you connect with Christ at our Next Steps area. So no matter where you're at, we cannot wait to see you. Everybody, welcome to church today. Uh, we are walking into a series here at the end of the summer called "The Good Life." And uh, man, is it good to be in church today? I, I'm, I'm still amazed that uh, Heyman somehow worked Pikachu into announcements. I don't, I didn't think you could do it, but prove me wrong. He did it. Uh, can, can we just do this as we begin? I just really feel like it's so appropriate for us to let's go very intentionally right now before the Lord and invite the Lord to be a part of specifically our, our learning time today. Would you bow with me? Jesus, we've been singing about how great you are. We've had the meal of communion. Uh, we've been obedient and coming and giving today. We're fellowshipping with one another. And as we open up uh, your words, we're, we're to look at the things you did. Jesus, would you fall on us uh, in power? Your spirit, would your spirit speak right to our hearts? The heart of the skeptic that's maybe doesn't believe. Uh, those of us who've maybe believed for a long time, but we, we, we want to have new ears. We want to hear fresh. Jesus, would you, would you show up yet again and just show us a, a larger version of uh, maybe the box that we put you in? Just open our eyes a little bit more to how incredible you are. It's in your name. We focus right now, Jesus, and we begin. Amen. Uh, I do want to welcome you to this new series. We're doing a series called The Good Life, and I think that's exactly what Jesus was promising people. Now, you have to have the right version of the good life, but from the, the second Jesus became flesh, technically the kingdom of God invaded our reality. The spiritual realm and the kingdom of God is here and is a reality now because Jesus came and lived on earth. That was a brand new thing. God manifesting himself and showing himself to people in the Old Testament, that happened. But when Jesus took on our condition, when he takes on flesh and lives like us, we use the phrase heaven and earth collided and from that point, the kingdom of God has been established. And Jesus started preaching in the last three years of his life during his ministry years. Jesus preached, the kingdom is now, the kingdom is here, and it is a good life and you can be a part of it. I do not believe that he, he was thinking, when you die, you, he was saying, you can be a part of it now. If you believe in Jesus and you follow Jesus, for the very first people that set at his feet in those synagogues around the Capernaum, 
region or in Jerusalem, anywhere in his travels in uh, what is now Israel, any of those places where Jesus preached and they heard him say, the kingdom is now, if you believe in me, they can be in the kingdom and have the good life. We are going to look at a verse. I, I believe that Jesus taught a lot of these sermons time and time again, but it's recorded in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes. At the end of the sermon, Jesus makes this claim. It's our core verse for the day. Matthew chapter five, verse 20. I think when Jesus said it, that it was a real awkward moment. I think he was good at that because he knew the hearts of everyone in the room. I mean, he's preaching in synagogues where there are Pharisees and scribes that they make their living. Like that's what they do. They study God's word all the time as rabbis. And we're in, we're in this moment where Jesus kind of points some stuff out about the Pharisees and rabbis and this famous verse. And it links to the good life. So let's look together at what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5.20. Here it is. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness, Jesus says, has to be better than. That word surpass, it, it speaks of like a waterway. If you think of a, a water at normal, normal height in a river, uh, that, that would be normal. The word surpass that Jesus uses is that water would rise and break out of its bounds. It would be bubbling over the levees. It would be out of control. And you couldn't tell where the original channel of the river is because the water, the, the quantity that's in there has surpassed. It is overwhelmingly more, exceedingly more. You have to have more righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law that do it professionally. That's what Jesus is telling people here in the kingdom of heaven. This is a statement of introduction to a group of paragraphs that are gonna follow concerning the good life. Jesus is getting ready to talk about the good life when he gives this statement. Some of the things that he's gonna talk about in his version of what a good life needs to be, I mean, here's his list of topics. He gets, he's talking about adultery here in a few verses. Divorce, anger, taking on of oaths, retaliation in any form, and love. He really is talking about the good life for those who have ears to hear. And the good life, as Jesus would explain it, is this. Good life equals righteousness. Good life equals righteousness. I don't know if that word resonates with you deeply. It, it is a little bit of a, a church Word. I don't think you walk around all the time saying righteous. Uh, when I was in school, we did because Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure just came out, right? Some of you haven't seen that. Some of you have seen it and you love it and you're lying right now. <laughs> Keanu Reeves acting debut. It never got better, folks. Never, Keanu, I'm sorry. I personally apologize. Uh, but they said righteous in that movie all the time. I was like, righteous, dude, righteous. That was like a saying. I don't think we got the gravity of the word. I don't think we got the full weight of the word. Righteous is perfectness. It is holiness without any blemish. Nothing wrong with it. Hitting the mark completely. Righteousness. And Jesus will compare two different versions of righteousness. He will show us fake righteousness. And then he will show us what real righteousness is. 
in this one verse and the really what follows, the good life that follows. Fake righteousness uh, would be summed up in the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus would so many awkwardly at times point out. Now, if you've been around God's word at all and you've read, maybe you've got some connotations on Pharisee that are bad. In its original term, Pharisee, in the day when Jesus is talking about it, it's not, it's not looked down upon uh, in, in a lot of ways because they're just people that would go after God's law. They would try to learn and study God's word. Nothing wrong with that in the strictest sense of the form. We should be doing the same thing. There are some people that were Pharisees that uh, really came to believe in Jesus. Nicodemus would be one of those. Joseph of Arimathea most likely would have been a, a Pharisee. Paul, one of the most famous Pharisees of all time, would put his hope in Jesus. And so being someone who studies the law, no problem with that. But there's something about their righteousness that is fake that Jesus points out. See, there, there are 613 mitzvah rules, precepts, commands in the Old Testament. It's a lot of rules. My kids can handle about four rules. After that, they just get dark brain. Okay, it's like, do you remember rule number two? No. Okay, 613 mitzvah rules. It's a lot of rules. And they would get together with one another and they would, they would pour over the text and, and try, to, try to catch one another on their interpretation of keeping the rule. That was like what they did for a living on these 613 law rules. There was actually a saying between the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They would say, if only two Jews go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. It was beyond their imagination that uh, a Jew that wasn't a Pharisee or scribe would go to heaven, let alone someone like many of us that are not ethnically a part of the, the national Jewish people. But God has opened that up to all of us. That is what Jesus did. And so their fake righteousness was wrapped up in things they did. They prayed three times a day, not bad in of itself, but the way they did it for show was bad. They fasted all the time. They tithed on even the spices from their garden. It's not a commandment, but they would get all of the dill, if you grow dill or cumin or any of the things that they grow, and they would take 10% and say, I'm going to give 10% of this to the Lord. And they, they would let everyone know that they did that. So when Jesus shows up and says, you've got to have righteousness, you've got to be more right about every law than those guys, some of the first hearers of this were sweating. These guys have got their church game going on. Like, how are we going to compete with these guys that do church full time? That's the only thing they have to do. This is, I, I always compare this, my wife and I, one of our pet peeves is when a professional paid actor, someone that does it for a living, they have to like gain weight for a movie, right? Like that's their job, right? And they go on the talk shows and the talk shows are like, so how did you do it in this role? Like, how did you gain all that weight? Like, what was your secret? I'm like, is that a real question? What, what, they, they swam in gluten, okay? They had the best time ever. That's what they did. Or, or I, 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 even the people, like, like they lose a lot, like an extreme amount of weight for a role. I'm like, we're all proud of you, but let's be honest, it's your full-time job, okay? I mean, you wake up and you tell your private chef, I want 600 calories and they better taste great. I, I don't think it's that hard when it's your full-time job. Do you know how many Wawa's I pass on the way to work? <laughs> One, too many, Okay. And that's like, these guys, their full-time job, full 
full-time gig is being perfect and being righteous in the law. And Jesus says, you gotta be better than those guys. And they're all like, well, my goodness. Like, honey, get the keys. We're out. We're not going to heaven. There's no good life for us. Not gonna have it. It's not for us. We drove all this way to see Jesus and he's got bad news. That's, that's not true. Jesus had a deeper teaching. Truly, there's fake righteousness. And these guys had fake righteousness because the outside looked really good, but the inclinations of their heart and even their actions posed something very different. There's a, a, a research project that's been done by Barna Group. Barna Group is a nonprofit faith-based organization that does large surveys and polls to find out just what people, church people are thinking, and sometimes non-church people. They're a poll group. Uh, one, of the, one of the things they've done recently, and about, about the last past two years, they asked anyone that would just check the box and identify themselves as Christian, a series of questions. But here's how they went about the questions. They looked at all of the encounters that Jesus had with people. Just if you've, if you've been around any of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life, think of some of the people he encountered, Zacchaeus in a tree, tax collector. Uh, a woman that was caught in an immoral act and they just threw this lady at his feet. He had to interact with her. A lady that was trying to get a drink of water, you know, and really didn't want to be bothered by company or anyone from town. A real important person named Nicodemus in the middle of the night. They looked at every time Jesus interacted with someone and they asked two sets of questions about Jesus's actions towards them and Jesus's attitudes towards that person. And then they asked another set of questions based upon the teachers of the law of that day, the Pharisees. Those who walked around saying 613 laws, nailing it, we got them. We got all the laws down. Matter of fact, if you want to fight me about a law, we'll do like a rap battle, okay? And we'll go back and forth and find out who can outwit another one on how better one of us might be at one of the 613 laws. Sound like fun? No, it doesn't. They asked 10 questions about those people, about their attitudes towards people and about their actions towards people. So it was a list of 20 questions. It's really a survey to find out where, where people that would check the box and say, I'm Christian, where we would really line up. Would we line up with what looked like in Jesus's day, good religion, following God, right living, righteousness, or the, the righteousness that Christ was saying, you gotta have this kind of righteousness. I think it would be good for us just to think on some of those questions. And here's why I wasn't gonna do this, but I took the test and I, I hated every part of it. So I thought I would share it with you. You know, and I, I, I would say this about some of the questions. Some of them you have to really think about because you might not like it immediately. And some of you are like, oh, I, I totally agree with that. And your answer could be wrong. Actions, attitudes of Jesus and the self-righteous. Here are the questions. You would answer the question by saying, I affirm that that's who I am or that's not who I am. I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. I regularly choose to have meals with people 
with very different faith or morals than me. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. Attitudes, I see I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God is for everyone. I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. It is important to help people know God is for them. It's more important to help God know, to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know they are sinners. I mean, just get that. It's, it's more important to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know they're sinners. Does that describe you or not? I feel compassion for people who are not following God, people who are doing immoral things. I feel compassion for them. Does that describe your heart, your attitude? The second set of questions dealing with the Pharisees. Do you identify with this? I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem so constantly doing the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. People who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. 20 questions. I sat at my desk. I read through, through each question. And I start to dig into the data and, and look at how people like me that would call themselves Christian over a, a large range of people, different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, different, all, all different ethnic nationalities, other, other places around the world. And I look at the outcome. 51% of Christians who affirmed or disaffirmed these different statements lined up with the attitudes and hearts of Pharisees. So those of us who would say, I'm a Christ follower in my life and my life is centered around that. 51% of us would actually, when you kind of drill us down to where our heart is pointing and what our actions are doing, we would stand in a camp with pharisaical actions and heart-mindedness more than what Christ was about. One out of every seven in this study 
we found truly have the attitudes and actions that are consistent with who Jesus was and what Jesus called real righteousness. Technically, it is possible that we are denying God as we are religious people and we are doing this in his name, denying who he really is with our actions and our heart. Just like those who were in charge of teaching God's word when Jesus showed up. And Jesus shows up and says, that's fake righteousness. So what's real righteousness? It's not very often that uh, our, our content in kids church matches up with what we're doing here in big church. I call this big church. Welcome to big church. Uh, this just it was where all the big people go. And the kids are back there. And my wife happens to be teaching this weekend in kid church. And so uh, as is the custom when mama's teaching in kid church, we talk about it all week. And just talk, and it, it lines up. It really lines up with what we're doing. Their verse is a, a time when Jesus really talks about what real righteousness is. And it says this in Matthew 18, three through four. Here's our kids church lesson today. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so in kids' church today, we're, we're busy telling them, stay just like you are, right? But in a very specific way. Uh, all of our boys are, are pretty big. Our youngest is 13. And so there's, there's a lot of self-sufficiency around our house. You know, hey, can I help you with that, son? Nope, I got it. Nope, I'll do it. Nope, I know how. Nope, leave me alone. You know, these are the things we hear, you know, because they know how to do it. They got it figured out. And we're like, hey, we can help. Nope, okay, you got it. So we had, we had a staff member over that's got one, two things that we don't have, girls and little ones, okay? So their youngest two-year-old, Amelie, is running around the house. And we have uh, one of our family members is Murphy. He's a dog. Murphy's way of saying, I love you, is putting as much of your body in his mouth as he can get, okay? <laughs> He's not eating you. That's just his way of saying, I'm glad you're over here, okay? And uh, he doesn't slow down. He, he lets the impact of your body stop him, okay? Amelie was getting trucked, I, I, we, I was like, we got to check her for a concussion. I think she has hit him, hit the floor four or five times. And it's just a, a pattern. And she, she assumes this position all night long after being trucked by Murphy, running around the house like this, arms out, crocodile tears, looking for anyone taller than Murphy that will rescue her, right? Even, even, even creepy Johnny. She's like I'll, like, I'll take you, I'll take you. She runs in the room and she hands out, I need you. I need help. I can't do this on my own. I've got to have someone help me. Lift me up out of the situation I am. I am I'm not capable of doing this on my own. I'm at my wits end. Can you not see my tears? We hold her for five seconds and she's all better. After the dog. Right back in the kitchen. I need you. I need help. Help me again. This is what Jesus is saying that we've got to keep. And we, we teach children, hey, figure it out, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get a job. Come on, let's do this. Let's do self-sufficiency. Do it on your own. Try it before you come to me and all of these things. But spiritually, it's the opposite. Spiritually, we're supposed to be like kids and go to our father and say, I can't do it. 
Just help me, show me, guide me, lead me, be everything in my life because I'll mess it up on my own. It's gotta be you. This is what Jesus says real righteousness is. The key, the secret to righteousness is this. It begins inwardly. I mean, really, obedience or disobedience always begin inwardly. Jesus will go on in the rest of chapter five to talk about six specific areas where we can have the good life. There are two of these scenarios where it's just crystal clear that the secret to righteousness begins on the inside of the heart where it's just, it's obvious to all of us that have completed kindergarten. There are these two subjects, murder and adultery. Jesus talks very specifically about these. The law states, thou shalt not kill. You you can't kill someone. The law states, you shall not commit adultery. Technically, you you could be doing what's right by the law if someone were to take you and just make you sit on a chair or chain you to a chair in town square and someone's got an eye on you and if you were sitting on the chair in the middle of the town square and someone was accountable for you and watching you, we could verify that you've not killed anyone and you've not committed adultery. On those two specific points, you were living up to the law, according to the law. Jesus says the secret to righteousness is not just looking on the outside like you are living up to the law. That's fake righteousness. The secret to real righteousness is in the heart. Because we all know that you could sit on a chair in the middle of Times Square and someone could verify that you've not killed anyone. But in your heart, you've hated a lot of people. And your anger has caused you to gossip, slander, position, lie, cheat people. And Jesus says, fake righteousness is just sitting there and saying, well, I've not killed them. But we both know that we have. We've killed their reputation. We've killed relationships they're involved in. We've killed their ability to make a livelihood. We've hated. And hatred is murder. Because the secret to righteousness starts in the heart. We all also know that we could sit on a chair in the middle of Times Square and have someone verify that we've been really good, but technically in our hearts, we've committed adultery time and time again through lustful thoughts. And Jesus says, I'm not talking about what everything looks like on the outside. That's fake righteousness. He says, I see the heart and real righteousness starts in the heart. So what do we do? Well, there's a verse in Proverbs that would tell us we gotta, get, we gotta get a plow out and we've got to till the soil of our heart. Here's how it says it. You've gotta hear it a couple of times to, to let it sink in. It's a very short verse. Proverbs 21.4 says this. Haughty eyes and a proud heart the unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. 
when a field sets dormant and it's, it's not tilled up and we're not looking into our own life reflectively, we're not examining ourselves closely, we're, we're not comparing ourselves to the, maybe the asphalt right, parking lot that's next to us, say, well, I'm dirt, I'm not as hard as that, and we're not doing all this comparative thing. We start to get the plow out and work the soil up of our hearts. We start to realize that what's in our soil is this. There's haughty eyes and a proud heart, and that is a unplowed field of the wicked, and it produces sin, which is unrighteousness. So if you're like me, you continually have to get, a, get to a place where you get the plow out and you till the soil of your heart because you start to recognize, oh my goodness, I'm not, I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm not and I might look like it on the outside and I've got some people fooled and it looks like my church game is strong, but my relationship with Jesus and my connection to Jesus is not this. I need you, I need you, I need you. My connection to Jesus is more like, look at all the good stuff I'm doing for you. I've got this figured out. I've got this. And he rejects that, but he never rejects this. A broken heart and a contrite spirit he will not deny. So here's the incredible news. Paul wasn't there when Matthew saw Jesus teaching this. It wasn't until later after Jesus died, went into a grave, was resurrected from the grave, and then Jesus chose Paul and spent time with Paul. And actually, Paul filled that, that 12th apostle spot. And Paul became the one that would take Judas's spot. Jesus picked him and spent time with him. And Paul went on to write a letter to the church in Rome. And he completely explains our situation. If we are like the people who first heard it, and Jesus says, you've got to have faith better than those churchy people that look like they've got it all figured out. And you're like, oh no, here it is. Paul writes this through the power of the Holy Spirit for our good. Here's what he says in Romans 8, verse three. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The 613 rules that we're supposed to follow, if we followed them perfectly, we would have a pretty good life. The problem is we can't because the vessels that we are in are flesh vessels and we have a proclivity towards messing things up. We like sin. We're tempted by sin and we give into it and we break the law. We were not capable of fix, of doing the law. We couldn't add up. And so it says that God sent his son in our condition, the likeness of flesh, to be a sin offering. He would not sin so that he would be acceptable to God as an offering for our sin. He would pay our price in death. And so in that, he condemned sin in the flesh. Once and for all, Jesus said, all of the people that have sinned and their sin, I'm paying the price for it. I condemn you, sin, says Jesus. Verse four, here's why. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a requirement of righteousness. How much do we have to have? It's got to be surpassing the really good churchy people of Jesus' age, the Pharisees and the scribes. It's got to be better than those. Well, how do you get it? Well, Jesus met the requirement of the law fully for us. And now we don't live according to the flesh, but we live according to the spirit. John Bunyan penned these words beautifully. To run and work the law commands, yet give me neither feet nor hands. Just think about that. To run and work the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. We will mount up on wings like eagles through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have immediate surpassing righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And we can't have a good life if we're doing this, believing the false teaching of salvation by self-effort. Salvation by you can do it is a lie. It's a false teaching. Next to sin, the Bible opposes nothing more than the religion of human achievement. Not that us growing and engineering and creating is bad. No, that's given to us by our creator. But when we do that and say, because of this, I am now righteous, that he hates. We get his righteousness and then we get to do good works. We don't do good works to try to get righteousness because he laughs at our righteousness. The work we do for righteousness is filthy. It's not good enough. We take on his righteousness. What God has been doing since the Tower of Babel is coming in and tearing down and tilling up anything that we build up to say, look at my righteousness, look at my righteousness. He wants us like this. So if if the secret to real righteousness is found in our hearts, how is your thought life How's how's the soil in your heart? If you're like me, you probably have to have a a plow always out of the shed and ready to do a little work. And you got to continue to go to it and plow up that heart so you can see, oh man. My fake righteousness is not working. Uh Jesus, I need your real righteousness. I need it. I need it. So dear friends, If you don't have the righteousness of Christ in your life, you've never believed in him as the son of God, repented for your sins and asked the spirit to come and live in you. Our invitation is his invitation. It is always open for you to do that. I want to invite everyone to stand and we are going to sing with one voice. The line simply says people come together. People come together. Don't let your heart be troubled, but lift your head up and lift your arms up and get your face looking towards God because he alone is the salvation blood that we are counting on. Let's lift our voices. 
Let's respond to him because we need Jesus.